it behooves us to show them the real thing. Not a designer model of church, not a softened model of church, not a model of church where we filed off all the hard edges. No, it behooves us to show them the real thing, not a seeker-friendly. If we show them a watered-down seeker-friendly version, when are we ever going to later show them the real thing? Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church here in Joppa, Maryland, and this is episode number two. So congratulations. You're with us at episode number two. Thank you for helping get this off the ground and uh, make it a real event. So here is today's topic. I'm going to introduce it in several ways. Way number one, here's today's topic. Who is church for? I know some of you who teach English grammar would make that. For whom is church? For whom does church exist? I don't care. Who is church for? In other words, we got to decide, and we're going to try and decide today. We're going to help you decide. Is church primarily for reaching non-Christians? Is that what church is for? Is church primarily a place so you can invite your friends, they'll feel comfortable about it, we'll avoid topics that don't offend them, we'll stay off of parts of the Bible that they don't need to hear or won't get? Is that what church is primarily for? Or is church primarily for believers and edifying them up? Here's a sub-point of that, another way of introducing the question. Um, Who is our preaching for? So I bring this up because people who I love, well-meaning people, great people, I'm not complaining about anybody, but people will periodically say to me, Pastor Steve— with you preaching the way you are, I don't feel like I can bring my non-converted friends. So it's like they have heard this from other places. That's why they've got it. We're being handed a new yardstick by which we measure what happens in church. And the new yardstick is this. It's like, this is the bottom line. Can I bring my non-saved friends to it and it'll all be okay and they'll like it and it'll work well for them? Or if I bring my non-Christian friends, are there things that might offend them? Are there things they might not like? Are there parts of the Bible I'd rather not expose them to until they know Jesus Christ? So who is church for? Who is preaching for? Um, And this matters because, man, there are churches all around. There are pastors who, well, I don't want to sound mean. I'll be mean. Frankly, they ought to know better. The Bible tells us that church is for believers. Well, first it's for God, so God's pleased in it. But secondly, it's for believers. And only thirdly, in a tertiary way, might it be, and hopefully it will be, for non-Christians. So what we're asking is, is church for non-Christians mainly? And the answer is No. Here's where we're going to start building the answer. So number one, we're going to think about bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible. So people don't seem to know. I want you to know. I want us to understand that when we ask a question like, hmm, let's see, for whom is church? Is church for them or is church for them? We don't just like make up our mind. We don't reason about it a little bit and say, I think it would be better if it goes that way. I think better that way. What do we do? We go to the Bible. This is Bibliology 101. We test all things by Scripture. We take all things to Scripture. We say, hmm, does the Bible speak about that? If the Bible doesn't speak about it, then we probably have freedom. We can go this way or that way. But where the Bible speaks, wow, we want to get underneath that. We want to get behind that. We want to go with what the Bible says. So the Bible speaks and tells us how to do church. The Bible gives us ecclesiology, and pastors are responsible to know biblical ecclesiology. But let's stay with the Bible for a minute. The Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, tells us that the Bible is sufficient for pastors so they can know how to do church. 
Again, we're in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We mentioned them last week in episode number one. Go back and listen if you haven't heard it. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that the man of God, technical term for a pastor, a guy who's in the ministry, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We call that, what that verse is talking about there is the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is sufficient to tell us how to do church. Like, Scripture doesn't tell us how to do complex math. That's not its purpose. But its purpose is to tell us how to do church. And Scripture is very, very clear and very, very sufficient in telling us how to do church. So, hmm, I'm going to be a little snarky again. Novel idea, huh? Hmm, that we would go to the Bible to find out how to do church. Seems like a lot of people have lost trust with it, lost 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 touch with that idea, but that's exactly where we want to go. So, bibliology, we go to Scripture. All right, here's where we go next to ecclesiology. I mentioned it, now let's go to ecclesiology. What is ecclesiology? It is the study, the systematic study of what's in the Bible about the church. It's where Jesus Christ, the head of the church, tells us, hey y'all, here's how to do church. Do it this way, don't do it that way. So in our ecclesiology, we're going to make a couple points. Here's one of them. This might be surprising to some people, but it shouldn't be. Jesus Christ is head of the church. That means he's the one who's over it. I'm not over it. You're not over it. Nobody else is over it. No committee's over it. No church is over it. It's Jesus Christ who is the head. As head, he dictates to the church what it's supposed to be, what it's not supposed to be. We read that in Ephesians chapter 5. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives ought to submit to their husbands and everything. So Christ is the head of the church. This means we submit to him. He tells us, here's how you do church. We say, speak, Lord. We are your servants, and we hear you. So it's his church. He decides how we do it. So the question is not, how can we do church in such a way that I can invite my friends? Wrong question. The question is, how can we do church in such a way that we can invite Jesus, that if he came to our church, he'd say, right, way to go. That's how I told you how to do it. That's how I want it. In other words, the question is not, will my friends like it? The question is, and this isn't super spiritual, I mean this, the question is, will Jesus like it? Will he say, yes, that's the way I designed church. You're doing it the way I've told you to in my word. He'll like it when it's according to his word. Now, this, by the way, is what a lot of Christians, Reformed people, Christian Reformed Christians, have found in the Bible for a long time. They have called it the regulative principle of worship. I'm not overly fond of that mouthful. And starting it off with regulative, it sounds a little rough in our day, but it's a great, it's a great paragraph. In the London Baptist Confession of 1689, uh, chapter 22, paragraph 1, they write, quote, But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by him. And so it's limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor according to the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. London Baptist Confession, 1689, chapter 22, paragraph 1. So what's that saying? It's saying the way to do church is in the book. 
and we're to do church according to the book. So we don't get to just ask questions like, hmm, let's see, what kind of church would we like to be? Would we like to be the kind of church that's for believers, or would we like to be the kind of church that's for non? We don't get to do that. We get to go to the Word and say, what does Jesus Christ tell us to be? That's ecclesiology. Here's some more ecclesiology as we're building our case for this. It's Jesus' Great Commission. You heard of the Great Commission? That's at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus said, I'll read it for you, verse 18, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in other words, we should listen to what he says and do it. All right? He has all authority in heaven and earth. So he tells us what to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what comes next. This comes with all the authority of Jesus. What are we supposed to do in the church? What is the church supposed to do when it gathers? What are we supposed to do with God's people? Jesus says, once you baptize some believers and you have them there in your assembly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How much was that? All. All, you're supposed to teach my disciples everything I've commanded. So you don't get to say, hmm, let's see, which parts of what Jesus said would be good for my non-Christian friends, and which parts would just be confusing and offensive, and I'll leave those parts out, and we'll only do the good parts. No, Jesus says, I want you to teach them all, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, keep doing this till I return. So from first coming to second coming, from the day of Pentecost to second coming at least, this is what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to teach, baptize believers everything Jesus commands. And by the way, everything that Peter wrote is Jesus commanding. Everything Paul wrote is Jesus commanding. Everything everybody wrote in the New Testament is Jesus commanding. It's all the word of Jesus Christ, and we're to teach it all. So that's ecclesiology. It tells us uh, something about the direction of our preaching. Here's another interesting thing about ecclesiology. What if it's unpopular in our day to do what Jesus said? What if it's unpopular? There are certain texts that will be unpopular. Man, don't preach that, Pastor Steve. I can't bring my friends if you're going to preach that kind of stuff. What if if it's unpopular? Um, You know, let me put it this way. Jesus preached in such a way that sometimes people left and didn't like it. He was sometimes unpopular. Uh, People leaving because they didn't like it is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it is definitely a good thing. If you're a healthy church and people are coming in and they all like you, they all say, wow, that was wonderful, you're not a healthy church. There's something wrong because we know about human nature. We know about human fallenness. We even know that all Christians won't necessarily get their expectations for a church right. And if everybody speaks well of you, Jesus says, uh, Luke 6, 26, well, woe to you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And there was this other time, it's recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 6. In fact, it's a verse with an ominous verse number. It's John 6, 6, 6. John 6, 66. And it fits that number It says, after this, Jesus is teaching on some hard stuff, not seeker-friendly stuff. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were like, okay, that was too far. I'm done. I don't go with him anymore. They turned back and no longer walked with him. 
do you want to criticize Jesus for that? Do you want to say, Jesus, you needed that to be more nuanced. Look, you offended them. They're walking away. You're not doing this right, Jesus. You shouldn't bring those parts out yet. Your message needs to be more seeker-friendly and more palatable. No, you don't want to criticize Jesus. In fact, Jesus went on to say, verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And they all said, no, because you have the words of life. Where else would we go? And then Jesus goes on to say, actually, I'm paraphrasing it here. One more of you is going to go. His name is Judas. So if you're doing things right, you're going to have people not like it. If you're doing things right, you're going to have people offended. Now, I'm not saying you ought to be as stupid as you can be and unnecessarily offend them. That would be a bad thing. But if you're being like Jesus Christ, and if you're being, frankly, like all of his apostles— there are always going to be people who aren't going to like your message. John talks about this, 1 John 2.19. He talks about people who have left the church. I don't want that anymore. I'm done with that. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us, 1 John 2.19. Now, he's not talking about some believer who decides, you know what, I'd do better in that church, I'm leaving this church. That's not it. He's talking about people who say, I'm leaving the faith. I'm leaving church. I'm leaving Christ. I'm leaving the Bible. I don't want what's in this church. They went out because they were not really of us. Any healthy church has a steady flow of people coming in and a steady flow of people going out. You just hope that your flow coming in is bigger than your flow going out. But if there aren't people leaving, you're not a church. You're a, what are you? You're an amusement park. You're an entertainment. You're something that isn't the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' great commission, teach them everything. They won't always like it all. Some of them will leave. Now, some more ecclesiology, building our case that church is for the people of God. Primarily, it is for believers and not for non-Christians. And so we don't tweak it. We don't design it, designer church. We don't twist it according to what non-Christians will like. So here's some more ecclesiology. But first, before we get to it, let me just take a moment and say, hey, if you're liking this podcast, please write us a short review. That'll be a help. Thank you very much. Back to our ecclesiology. All right, so here we go. So scripture, I want to make this point, man. Are you ready? Hit pause. Get a drink of water or something. I really want you to hear this point. Scripture, the Bible, God's Word, explicitly, plainly, clearly, unambiguously teaches us that the gatherings of God's people are primarily for believers. We could get uh, one step above that, which I think you all assume it's actually primarily for God, right? That's not super spiritual either. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything we do in church is for God. It's for His glory. But the Bible teaches that if you're looking at humans, if you're looking horizontally and you have to pick, let me see, hmm, is this for non-Christians or is this for Christians? We have churches today saying, well, we've decided we're for non-Christians. You don't get to do that. You should know better. So what what I'm proposing to you now is, what I'm uh, hoping to convince you of now is, Scripture expressly, plainly, clearly tells us that the gatherings of God's people are primarily for believers, for their edification. So, I'm going to take you right to 1 Corinthians 14, and let me just give you some setup for 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is a very special and important chapter in the Bible for knowing how to do church. Like, it is the Bible's premier extended teaching passage that answers the question, let's see, when we gather, what should we do? 
Like that's taught in the entirety of 1 Corinthians 14, like nowhere else in all of God's Word. Got to watch the microphone there, Steve. So what does 1 Corinthians uh, 14 tell us? Does it say, now look, when you gather together, use this yardstick, measure things by this. Will it make sense to your non-believing friends? If not, change it, tone it down, shift it. Will it be unnecessarily offensive? If it's going to be offensive to them, change it. Is that what the chapter says to us? What does the chapter say? So here's what I want to tell you. Seven times in the chapter, sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb, Paul uses the word oikotameo, that's the verb form, or oikotamas, that's the noun form, and it means to build up or to be built. Build up, build up, build up. And he summarizes it in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? Like I've done all this teaching, let me give you a bottom line here. What then, brothers? When you come together, all right, that's church. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And then he gives us this broad, overarching, general principle. Let all things be done for edification. Let me read you that again. Let all things be done for building up believers. See, there's evangelism that's reaching non-Christians. There's edification that's building up believers. And Paul says, when you gather, here's your yardstick. Measure everything by this. Will it build up believers? Will it strengthen my people? That is what church is for. That's what we're told to do by the head of the church, using Paul's pen. Paul's writings are the Lord's commands. This is Jesus's commands that are to be taught to his people. And nothing could be more clear than that the head of the church in his word here tells us the measuring stick is, will it build up believers? So we don't get to say, no, we're a designer church, and we're going to have a church that's not about building up believers. We're going to have a church that's about reaching lost people. I hope your church is reaching lost people, but it is primarily to be judged by this yardstick, measured by this yardstick, is it edifying believers? Well, what about unbelievers? They are in 1 Corinthians 14. They make a couple little appearances, and Paul says in one place, so if some unbelievers come in and blah, 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 and then he he, uh, narrows that sum down to very few. He says later, so if an unbeliever comes in, so I want you to note this, the presence of unbelievers barely make it into the chapter, two little short appearances, and both times they're prefaced with an if. So if some unbelievers come in. So if an unbeliever comes in. In other words, Paul does not expect that in Corinth their whole show is about, let's get all our unbelieving friends, let's get them all in here. Let's do that. Please invite your friends. But the church is not expecting that we're mainly unbelievers here. We're mainly believers. We're mainly gathering to build up believers. And the presence of non-Christians, which is desired and covenanted, uh, not covenant and coveted, is to be worked for. But they're only an if. All right, that's ecclesiology. So here's a little bit more ecclesiology. Let's step back a little bit from what goes on in a church service, and let's just look at the church at large. And I want to say this. The Bible teaches us this. Remember, we're going Bible, ecclesiology, how do we do church? The Bible teaches us that the church does not even exist primarily for evangelism. No, the church exists primarily, I hinted at this a moment ago, to glorify God. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So certainly you do church to the glory of God. Now, evangelism is one very important, very significant way that we glorify God. 
And so uh, there are a lot of different ways we evangelize in church and outside of church. But certainly evangelism is crucial and critical, and we want to emphasize it and do all we can about it. But evangelism is one way that we glorify God. And in the name of evangelism, we don't cancel out other ways that we're supposed to glorify God, namely by doing church for his glory and mainly to edify believers. We don't cancel that out and say, well, we're evangelizing for the glory of God. So let me put all this in another way. Seeker services are not biblical. There I said it. I think they're well-intentioned. I think the people who have designed them and so on, see, they designed them. I think they mean well. I'm with them. I want to see lots of people come to Christ. I want to see the church grow and so on and so forth. But seeker services, let's design a service for the lost, is simply not biblical. Edification services are biblical. They are the will of the head of the church. All right, now we're going to leave some pastoral theology. Pardon me. We're going to leave the ecclesiology we've been doing, and we're going to go to some pastoral theology. So the Bible tells us how to do church, and part of that is the Bible tells pastors how to do pastoring. So we don't get to make that up. We don't get to say, hmm, let's see, what would I like to do and be as a pastor? Now, in areas that the Bible doesn't speak to, you get to do that. Like, do I want to preach for 30 minutes or 40 minutes? Bible doesn't dictate. Take your pick. Talk to your people. See what works. But there are a lot of parts of pastoral theology that are specified in the Word. They are the will of Christ for his church. And here I want to give you some of that. Uh, Some of our pastoral theology is this. Scripture gives us models for how pastors should teach God's people. That is, how content-dense should it be or not be. That is, what should be included in it? What should that be, or what should maybe be left out of it? And the, the place where we get these scriptural models is simply in, look at the teachings of the apostles. I don't just mean in the book of Acts where you get their sermons and see how they preach when they're out in the field somewhere. What I mean is read the epistles, so read, read all of them, read all the New Testament books, and say to yourself, that's what, read Romans, and say, that's what Paul would have sounded like when he preached. So here's, here's a little yardstick I take with me when I get to visit churches. I, I ask myself, I measure the guy preaching up there with this little yardstick, does he sound anything like the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or John in terms of the content, the biblical doctrinal content that he's giving us in his sermon? Does he sound anything like what Paul might have sounded when Paul preached in Corinth or in Ephesus or in any of the other places. That's a good measuring stick for judging preaching. So the measuring stick is not, hmm, does his preaching make it really, really easy for me to invite my non-Christian friends, and they'll never get upset or offended by anything there, and they'll absolutely love it, in fact. That's the wrong yardstick. The measuring stick, the yardstick, is... Does the preacher sound anything like the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or take any of them? For that matter, does he sound anything like the Lord Jesus, who was mainly doing evangelistic preaching but had it loaded with some really strong stuff? So open anywhere in your New Testament start reading. Most of what the apostles are teaching there is not just basic core doctrines. Most of what they're writing and their writings were to be read in the churches, copied by this church to carry down to that church. They read it in their services. Their pastors use it to study, to preach, to teach. They're supposed to read that scripture to the people with all the people sitting there and their friends. They're supposed to explain the doctrine in that scripture. They're supposed to apply that scripture. 
That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. So open anywhere you want. Most of what the apostles taught is not some like kind of lightweight, basic, entry-level core doctrine that my non-Christian friends will dig. That's not what they're doing. They're teaching God's people solid, meaty doctrine. In fact, the author of Hebrews actually complains about his people and says, look, I need to teach you some really meaty stuff, but your ears have kind of grown dull of hearing, and I'm having a hard time getting it down to your level. And it shouldn't be that way. He says, just because you've been Christians for a while, you ought to be teachers yourselves, but here I have to teach you the basics again. So far from the apostles teaching us, look, when you do church, keep it basic, keep it simple, keep it entry level, keep it seeker friendly. Quite the contrary, the apostles teach us it ought to be strong, meaty, robust, health-producing doctrine from God's Word. All right, here's some more pastoral theology. We hear from people. I'm a pastor. I hear from people with some regularity, and I'm not complaining at the people. Uh, I'm complaining at the pastors who are sowing these kinds of thoughts in their minds, pastors out there at other churches who are creating a whole movement of thinking this way about the church, a whole movement of thinking we can design it any way we want to be. So I'll have people say to me, that, that thing you preach today, maybe you shouldn't, you should be preaching that in the services where people are actually coming. Like, teach that somewhere else. I don't know where that somewhere else would be. But um, don't preach that, because when I bring my friends, it's not good. Listen, Scripture expressly—here's some more pastoral theology. Scripture expressly, plainly, clearly, unambiguously, powerfully teaches us that we are not to hold anything back in our public preaching of God's Word. Rather, we are to, to declare, and here's the term, I'll read it in the, in the passage in a moment, we are to declare what, what Paul calls the whole counsel of God. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 20, he's talking to the elders of the great and important and influential church in Ephesus, and he reminds them, hey, I was with you serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And, and remember, how I did not shrink—he uses that word twice—how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, Acts chapter 20. I didn't shrink back, he says. I didn't hold, I didn't hold back. I didn't pull any punches. Again, later in verse 26 of Acts chapter 20, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink— from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. So what is the whole counsel of God? The whole counsel of God is not just the gospel. The whole counsel of God is not just like entry-level, basic Christian 101 doctrines. The whole counsel of God is not what all your friends will be sure to like if you bring them. The whole counsel of God is not the Bible minus the offensive parts. The whole counsel of God is everything God says in his word on every topic. And Paul says, I didn't pull any of those punches. I didn't hold anything back. Every bit of that's profitable to you, so I declared it to you, and I did not shrink from that. I did not shrink from that. I declared to you the whole counsel of God. So we don't get to say, well, the way we've designed our church, our church exists to reach non-Christians, so we only preach these parts. You don't get to do that. Biblical Christianity is apostolic. To the extent that it is not apostolic, it is not biblical Christianity. And so we have to say, what do the apostles, who are giving us Christ's law, Christ's word, what do the apostles tell us to do in our preaching? Here's what they tell us to do. Preach the whole counsel of God. 
So when I'm preparing a sermon and I come up to a hard part and I think, man, some of our people, there are some of our people, they're going to have some of their friends who aren't Christians or some really weak Christians with them. They're going to struggle with this. I'll just pull that back. I'll just hold back on that. No, bad pastor. I don't get to do that. So uh, the Bible hands us our ecclesiology. The Bible hands us our pastoral theology. Now, a little more pastoral theology. This is pastoral theology and knowing the times. And here's what I want to say in this part. So pastors need to know the times. And if you're paying attention, I'm pretty sure you are, you, you almost certainly know that we are right now smack dab in the middle of some very, very difficult times for the world, for the nation, for the church, and for the, for the Church of Jesus Christ right here in Joppa, Maryland. We are in some of the times that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as perilous times. He says, 2 Timothy 3.1, in these latter days, perilous times will come. So the latter days to be certain, are from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. That's the entire time period of the church. It's all the latter days. And Paul's saying, things are going to wax and wane. It's going to get better. It's going to get worse. And there will be perilous times. We are in a perilous time. World War II was a perilous time. The Civil War was a perilous time. Right now, culturally, and in many ways, we are in a perilous time in our nation. Now, what happens to local churches in perilous times like these? Well, In perilous times like these, local churches are in danger because there's bad stuff going on in the culture, and it doesn't just stay out there. It doesn't say, oh, but you're the church. We'll leave you alone. No. In perilous times when evil is increasing and abounding in a culture, and it is in ours, that evil is trying to arise from within a church, and that evil is trying to come in from outside a church. And Paul tells the Ephesian elders that, Acts 20, verses 29 and following. Let me read it to you. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, you Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to watch, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, why is it so important that they watch and care and pay careful attention? Here's why, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And what I'm saying is, During perilous times, the number of wolves and the ferocity of wolves is on the increase. The wolves are coming for your church in perilous times. And it's not just wolves coming in from outside. He goes on, verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, watch, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with with tears. So we're in one of Paul's perilous times. In perilous times, evil is increasing and abounding. And that evil that's increasing and abounding wants to show up inside your church, wants to come in from outside and rise up from within. And so it behooves pastors to really watch and to really teach and to really protect the flock from the wolves that are trying to come in in perilous days like these. In other words, if we don't point out the errors of our day, If we don't possibly offend people who are showing up to look in one day, maybe they're not believers, maybe they're very untaught believers, and they're showing up. If we don't risk offending them while we warn our people of the dangers that are trying to come in, about the wolves that are trying to come in, then pretty soon we won't have a church. The wolves will eat it up, and it will turn into what the Bible calls Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, a synagogue of Satan. 
how do churches go liberal? How come so many churches go liberal? They start off theologically sound, and one day they wind up liberal. They're, they like go south biblically and theologically. How does that happen? And it happens again and again and again and again, and, and not just churches, but theological institutions. It's hard to keep a church for long from going liberal. What happens when churches go liberal? Who failed to do what? That's exactly what happened. Somebody failed to watch. Somebody failed to preach about the liberalism that's trying to get in. Yeah, but pastor, that'll offend my friends if you preach about that. Sorry, we got to protect the church right now. We're, we're, we're out for the life of our church here. So it's hard to be winsome and nuanced and leave out or soften the hard parts and not have wolves eat your church. That's some pastoral theology. Now I want to go just, and hang in with me, we're almost finished. Now I want to go to some what I'll call pedagogy. This is just plain old pedagogy. This is how to do teaching. So some pedagogy. So you've got a non-Christian friend, and you're talking to them about the faith, and they're starting to get interested. Now, maybe this is psychology too. If, if, if they have any sense, and they do, they're starting to think at some point, hmm, you know, I'm getting interested in the possibility of believing in Christ. I'm really thinking about that. But I, I need to count the cost. What will it mean? What will it mean for my life in that area, my life in that area? What, will I have to be honest then? And, and what will it mean for my Sunday mornings? Will it mean I'll have to go to church? I think it does. I better go check out church. So they're getting interested, and they say, I want to go check out church. That's probably where most of our non-Christian visitors would be. I'm interested in the possibility of that. Otherwise, why else are they showing up? But I want to go check out church and see what it is. Now, here's the thing. It behooves us for the sake of fidelity to Scripture. It behooves us for the sake of honesty honesty to our friends. It behooves us to show them the real thing, not a designer model of church, not a softened model of church, not a model of church where we filed off all the hard edges. No, it behooves us to show them the real thing, not a seeker-friendly. If we show them a watered-down seeker-friendly version, when are we ever going to later show them the real thing? real faith, the real rigorous demands of Jesus Christ, what church is really supposed to be. Now, if they're thinking about coming to Christ, we need to show them what's really involved. Hey, you need to know this is in the Bible. You're one into it. That's in the Bible. The Bible's going to speak to you about this. The Bible's going to judge our culture in that way. We don't want to hold those things back. We want to let them know up front, here's the cost. It's like this. So you're thinking about Hey, I would like this. I would actually love it if somebody would say, I will take you hunting grizzly bear. Yes, I would love it. Elk would be fine too, but grizz, man, a 900-pound grizz. That sounds pretty cool. So, so I say to you, 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 you're a grizzly bear hunter. I say, I want to go hunt grizz. And you guys say, look, he's never hunted grizz before. He's not a mountain man. He really won't dig it. When he sees the bear, it'll terrify him. Let's show him the designer version of grizzly bear hunting. Let, let's, like, soften the hard edges. So they create a theme park that's got little teddy bears in it, little stuffed teddy bears, and there's one tied to a tree over here and there's one hiding behind a bush over there. And they give me a Nerf gun with orange Nerfy bullets, and they say, all right, we're going to take you out bear hunting. And it's in a room. It's air-conditioned. It's really beautiful in there, and it's climate-controlled. And so I go out, and I see a little teddy bear taped to a— or roped to a tree, and they say, there's one, there's a grizz, shoot it. So I shoot him with my little Nerf gun, and the little funny Nerf thing there hits him, and, and they say, that's it, man, you shot a grizzly bear. Now you've been grizz hunting. And I think, well, that was pretty easy. That wasn't bad as I thought it would be at all. I, I don't mind grizz hunting. I think I'll go grizz hunting again. But one day, somebody takes me out 
for real grizz hunting. And I meet a real grizz, and I see you have to hike three days up into the mountains to even get where the grizzly bear is to start with. And this thing is rigorous, man. And why didn't they tell me that to start with? I might not have done this grizz hunt. We don't want to do that to our non-Christian friends. Now, here's what we don't want to do to them. Paul talked about that kind of thing. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. It's disgraceful and underhanded when you don't tell people what's really involved. We've renounced that. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. Hey, let's be cunning. Let's hold back this part. Let's not expose them to that part. Let's design a thing that they'll really like, but it's not really the real faith. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Wow. Did you hear that? We don't get to tamper with God's Word. Hmm, I'll preach this part. I'll hold off on that. We'll overlook that because that might not be good for the seekers in our services. No, 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 no. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled and they don't see it and they don't see the light, and it's veiled to those who are perishing. So if I'm not mistaken, biblical Christianity is a most rigorous faith. So rigorous that Jesus, kind of using an, an, an exaggeration for effect, says, hey, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out, meaning it's going to be very radical following me. We need to tell people that up front. He did. We don't want to take the winsome and nuanced approach. People claim we should be very, very winsome. We should be very, very nuanced. Well, somebody else claimed, and I like this more, somebody else claimed that one of the problems with current American Christianity is nobody's getting stoned. I don't mean stoned like with pot. I mean stoned with stones. Like apostles got stoned. Every one of them was a martyr in one way or another. Only John lived. Jesus was crucified. Do you want to say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, you should have been more winsome. You might have won them. You wouldn't have been crucified. You should have been winsome. They would have let you publish in their equivalent of the New York Times. You should have been more nuanced. And they would have said, oh, we appreciate him. You should have distanced yourself from the radical kinds of Christians in your day. No, no, the Lord Jesus was not that way nuanced. He was not that way winsome. And they crucified him. Problem with American Christianity, not many people are getting crucified or stoned. All right, I got just a couple more points. Hang in there with me. I want you to hear this next one, please. We're going to switch to what is called soteriology. What is soteriology? Soteri- soteriology are, is the doctrines of how people get saved. How does it really work? Now, there are many parts to all of that, but here's a part of soteriology I want you to consider. We believe, I believe, at our church we believe, in the sovereignty of God in human salvation. In other words, when God saves someone, he's the mover, he saves them, they will come to faith, he sends his spirit into their hearts in the day of his power, his word proves effectual, we believe in effectual calling, the spirit uses the word and calls them savingly to Jesus Christ and they repent and they believe. Now when God does that, he does a lot of other things in them and one of them is he gives them something that Paul calls the love of the truth. 
2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul's talking about people who did not receive a love of the truth. They rejected the message. But when God is saving somebody, he's doing a lot of things in them. He's regenerating them. He's giving them new hearts that love new things, and they receive a love of the truth. The church of Jesus Christ, the preaching in the church of Jesus Christ, is to require of you a love of the truth for you to love the church. If you don't love the truth, then you won't love the church, and you won't love the message, because we're supposed to give you the truth. So at Cornerstone Joppa, we're going to seek, by the grace of God, we're going to seek to skip, skip, to stick, pardon me, to a biblical ecclesiology, a biblical pastoral theology, a biblical soteriology. We're not taking the winsome and nuanced route. We're not trying to be smarter than Paul. We're not trying to avoid martyrdom. That's what some people are doing when they say, I can't invite my friends. If I invite my friends to hear the real thing, they might martyr me. Maybe not literally and physically. They might martyr me like it might damage my friendship, and I'm not willing to suffer damage to my friendship. Shame. Jesus was. The apostles were. They were martyred. They lost friends. Finally, I want to talk about the ill effects of changing church. What happens when you design a church for non-Christian people? One, it guts the church of her doctrinal core, of her doctrinal roots, of her doctrinal center. And it's only a matter of time after you do that that your whole church will wind up getting weaker and weaker and go liberal. Theologically, it'll go south. You lose your church. It ushers in a vast stupidity, a biblical ignorance of things that Christians are supposed to know. It starves the sheep who are supposed to be fed. What does Jesus say um, to his disciples, and to John in specific, John 21, 15, and 16? Peter, do you love me? I'm sorry, he says it to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Uh, Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Peter's getting a little annoyed. Lord, do you know all things? You know that I love you. And Peter says again, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to feed his sheep, not starve the sheep. And in a lot of churches where there's the seeker mentality, the sheep are being starved. Furthermore, if you change the church, it fails to expose the visiting non-Christians to real Christianity. And you might win more people, win in quotes, but what have you won them to? What do they believe they have believed in? What faith have they come to? So, Please invite your friends to Cornerstone Community Church. They're getting interested. Guess what they need? They need exposure to the real deal. They need to hear the Word of God taught in a way that's mature and fitting for mature Christians. Don't take your friends grizz hunting for a church this week. In the little teddy bear church, expose them to the real thing. All right, that's it for today. Who's church for? It's for God. It's to please Him. It's for His people. It's to edify them. It's for the lost people. It's to help bring them in. Don't change the church to bring in the lost. All right, that's it for today. But just before I let you go, let me remind you, Grounded comes out twice a month. You can find it on all your major platforms. Thanks for being here today.